You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Our topic today is diverse voices in biblical scholarship, and our guest is Miguel De La Torre. Yeah, he's a professor at ILIF School of Theology in social ethics and Latinx studies, and you'll you'll hear in just a little bit, Pete got that wrong, and I think for good reason, the amount of, of writing he does on biblical scholarship, which I always find fascinating that he is talking about ethics, social ethics, through the lens of the Bible, which I think a lot of us right. at least grew up wanting to do. Yeah, I just, again, my bias, right? I just assumed... <laughs> You know, from from reading his stuff. So, but anyway, he's written about thirty to forty thousand books. I think just to go to his website, he has a lot of stuff there, and and very diverse topics like the politics of Jesus, reading the Bible from the margins, uh, something called post colonial theory. We talk a little bit about colonialism in the episode, but yeah, just you know, very enlightening to to bring someone onto the podcast who knows a lot about a particular area that we didn't have, Jared. You know, we just we did not. Grow up, the the, right. the seminaries he's critiquing. I mean, you know, it's not a cheap shot. It, it describes very much our experience in seminary, right? Right, and and for me, graduate school too. Well, and one thing that maybe we can talk about here for just a minute before the podcast starts is I kept thinking in the back of my mind how this intersects with politics because I wondered if some of our listeners might think this is a political. And it, it, I guess it pains me to think that listeners might think this is a political issue of diversity in biblical scholarship, and I kept trying to find out why it would be the case, but throughout the episode, yeah. I don't know why this should be a political thing to talk about diversity and having multiple voices in how we read and interpret our texts and right. how it's not great for all of us that we've only read it through one particular lens for most of biblical history, like interpretation history. Right. Yeah, because they're a dominant culture of a particular maybe socioeconomic class and skin color and gender has been at the top of the roost. And often we're blinded to the effects that our interpretation has on other people. But I talked about like the ethics of hermeneutics and I didn't really explain that. That's not sort of what I meant. It's like, why are you reading the text? What effects does it have on people? And it's, it's just good to hear from people, you know, who, who understand that far better than I do, who – We'll talk about it and, you know, I always leave a situation like this where I want to think differently about what I do yeah, and why I do what I do. Good. Well, and I, I would hope maybe many of our listeners will come away with that too. If nothing else, uh, put a book or two in your Amazon cart or, yeah. or not probably um, local bookstores once yes. we can get to local, local bookstores. bookstores. But, but just, just wash your hands. But grab a grab a copy of a book from someone who has a background that's different than yours right. and see how it might expand your worldview. All right. Let's All right. get to it. There's this idea, this mythology that the Bible can be read objectively. But in reality... We all read the Bible from our social location, from the area that we occupy. And when we do that, we read into the Bible our own social location, our own struggles, our own difficulties, and our own joys. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Miguel, welcome to our podcast. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Well, listen, you know, you're a biblical scholar and maybe just uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, just you know, how did you get into this and what, what drove you into this, this lucrative field of teaching and biblical scholarship where we're famous and we make a lot of money? Of course. <laughs> well, well, first of all, it's interesting because I'm not really a biblical scholar. I'm an ethicist. But I'm an ethicist oh. who really um, takes the biblical text serious in my own work. Um, okay. And I've written a lot of books about the, Bibli- about the Bible sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you could have fooled me because you do that biblical side very well. So, okay, you, you do may, wear many hats. Yes, but, um, but yeah, you're right. I've written a lot of books on the biblical text, and a lot of people think I'm a biblical scholar, but, but in reality, I, I, I'm, I'm just an ethicist. So how the- Just an ethicist? Now, that's not right. Just. <laughs> that seems pretty important. That might even be more important than being a biblical scholar. But anyway, go. so how'd you, get it, how'd you get into this field, like wanting to teach? and particularly in this area of being an ethicist. Sure. Well, well, it's interesting because, quite frankly, since I was 19 years old, I was a capitalist. I owned my own real estate company for a couple of decades, and and I was a very successful businessman in um, Miami, Florida. And then I went to church one day. It was a Southern Baptist church. And I, I basically started going to church for very deep theological reasons. Um, the girl I wanted to go out with would only go out with me if I went to church with her on Sunday. <laughs> so I started going to church on Sunday, but even though we broke up, um, one day I walked down the aisle, gave my life to Jesus, and, and really got into this understanding of Christianity and, and, and the biblical texts, and, and really got into it. Um, at one point, um, I decided I wanted to leave my business and go to seminary and become a minister. Um, so I um, dissolved my company, and I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, um, literally during the years of the fundamentalist takeover. So, oh, okay. You were there then. My goodness. All right. Oh, yes. I was there during yeah. those, those fun years. And I had a job at the library. So... While I was going to class and, and, and we kept learning about theology and biblical texts, it really wasn't resonating with me. So, uh, because I was looking at the library at night, I started pulling out books from the shelves that had Latino names on them, not knowing who Gustavo Gutierrez was, not knowing who Bonino was, not knowing who the Buff, uh, Puff, uh, Buff brothers were. And I started reading that, and, and, in, and in that reading, I was very radicalized because I began to read theology and, and the Bible through the perspective of different voices, usually the voices of the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. When I finished my theological education, I realized that there was no Southern Baptist church that was going to hire me as a pastor. 
So I did what every unemployed grad student does. Um, I went ahead and got my PhD. <laughs> and when I finished, I got a job at Hope College where I taught there for a while. And, and now I'm teaching at the Idaho School of Theology in uh, Denver, Colorado, as the professor of social ethics and Latinx studies. I, I guess so. one thing that came up as you were talking is the ethics of hermeneutics. You know, the, the, the ethic of having a hermeneutic, of reading the Bible for an ethical purpose, which is something that, you know, many people are not taught. It's like you analyze the text and you come away with an original meaning. But I imagine that you probably have a different perspective that it's really about there's, there's a purpose that these texts can serve for the greater good of, of people. And not just to write papers or write books. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would even go a, a little further. Most individuals who read the Bible, specifically with an eye on how to live their lives, read the Bible in a deductive manner. And what I mean by that is that they read the text, and then they decide, they deduce from the text, how they should be living their lives, what ethical acts they need to be engaged in. But to read the Bible from the margins, in other words, from re to read the Bible from the perspective of the disenfranchised, we turn that model on its head. So in the doing of the gospel message, in the midst of feeding the hungry and giving water to the thirsty and clothing the naked and, and, and taking in the alien among us, we then go back to the Bible and then we read the text and now we are able to interpret a text from the social location of us doing the gospel. And in this way, the text really becomes alive. We begin to truly understand, I think, the message of what the text is talking about. How, how is that? Can you maybe break that down a little bit, Miguel, in terms of the mechanics of that? Why, why does that make a difference for someone versus the, you know, the first way of reading you talked about, this deductive way? versus the get into the social context, into the behaviors and actions ethically, and then reading it through that lens. What difference does that make? It makes all the difference in the world. Unfortunately, many people believe that the biblical text only has one meaning. And, and, and whatever that meaning is, is the one that I came up with, therefore it must be true. So there's this idea, this mythology, that the Bible can be read objectively. But in reality, we all read the Bible from our social location, from the area that we occupy. And when we do that, we read into the Bible our own social location, our own struggles, our own difficulties, and our own joys. What, what occurs all too often is that while every biblical interpretation is truly objective, what has happened is that one group, uh, the predominant dominant culture, has made their objective interpretation of the text subjective for everybody else. So, because they have the power to make their objective interpretation subjective, we then believe that that interpretation must be true. But if instead we all come to the text with, with just a piece of, 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 of understanding it from our social location, then together in community, we could get a full picture of what the text is probably talking about. Well, could you flesh that out just a little bit more, the terms objective and subjective 
interpretation. That might be a little bit hazy for, for some of our listeners. So maybe flesh that out a bit. Sure. When I say an objective interpretation, that assumes that, the, that, that how I interpret the, the Bible is absolutely true. That somehow I have reached the true message of that biblical text. Therefore, it's totally objective. I'm not... So, irrespective of your social location. Right. Right. Okay, just sort of up there, just neutral and correct. Exactly. But the, okay. the problem with that is that we cannot read the Bible if not from our social location. We all bring something to the reading. And, and, and the concern is when one group of people make their objective reading subjective for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Right. So, the, the, yeah. So, I guess, you know, we are talking about those in power, the, the white Western approach to reading the Bible, which sort of has assumed a neutrality and not being affected by their social. Now, other people might be affected by their social location, but they're not. Exactly. Right. And, and that's sort of – that's – I mean, f- people don't talk that way as much anymore as they used to, perhaps, but it's still there, right? There, there's still an assumption that I can get at this truth. I mean, especially with maybe more conservative Christians, right, Jared? It just, I, I just, I'm just reading the text. I'm just getting what it means. Yeah, well, right? you know, with that, Miguel, one thing – maybe you can comment on this because I, I think – what you say, Pete, we maybe gotten past that a little bit, but I think what it is is not so much that we've gotten past it. It's more that there's still this belief that now now we can recognize it. I think in more conservative circles, we recognize we come at it from a very particular perspective, but I think the goal is to try to rid ourselves of that social context and location and get to the objective, mm. once-for-all, absolute meaning. And we all need to be in that together. We all are trying to shed our our contingencies and our subjectivities and our social context and come at this one universal utopia interpretation. But I hear you saying that maybe it's actually, it's not so it's such a liability. It might be an asset to have all these voices from all their contexts to give a fuller meaning. And while that may be true that we need all these voices to get a fuller meaning, I think we need to be humble enough to realize we'll never get to that fuller meaning. We'll always fall short. Uh, because every generation must read the Bible from their own time period as well. It's not just in this moment in time, it's also throughout history. So how the Bible was read and interpreted and used a couple of hundred years ago is very different than the way it is read and interpreted today. And that's a good thing because we're dealing with different problems today than we were centuries ago. Yeah, it reminds me of someone was talking about parenting the other day and how you can never be the perfect parent because once you get the two-year-old stage down, they become three, and then they become four. And so, once you finally kind of get a grasp of it for your time, the times change. And that's something that's always going to be at play, is the changing times. The way I try, the way I try to, to think about it is that if I say that the uh, wisdom of the text is infinite, then my finite mind can never totally capture it. Nor can the finite mind of my generation or of any group. All we can do is, as Paul would say, see through a glass dimly, one day hoping to see you know, fully. I'd love to hear you riff a little bit on a question that I know would come up in certain contexts here. If, if that's how we describe the Bible, it's sort of like infinitely... There, there are many infinite possibilities in engaging the text. 
people will ask, well, then how will I know what to do? How will I know what to live? I need this book to tell me. How, how, would, you, how would you help someone who's thinking like that maybe think differently? I guess I would say that we need to be very careful and suspicious whenever we think that we can figure out how what we must act based on one interpretation. History has shown us that has always been very dangerous. Life mm. is messy, and struggling to try to understand how to live an ethical life is also messy. And, and sometimes we will get it wrong, and that's part of our humanity. So, so, so I would try to really uh, advise about get, uh, moving away from this concept that if I only know what the right interpretation is, then I'm going to be okay, because we probably will never know what the right interpretation is. Are there boundaries to that? Are there, are there ways that you would say this is a bad, a bad interpretation? Can we use value words like good or bad when we're talking about interpretations? Well, I would hope we, we, we would, yes. Uh, so, so for me, the way I've, I've, I wrestle with this is that I look, my entry into the Bible is through John 10.10, which says, I have come to give life and give life abundantly. So, so the idea is, if there's an interpretation that does not bring life or life abundantly, then there's something wrong with that interpretation. And I could give you a couple of examples. When in Ephesians, Paul says, slaves obey your masters, well, that doesn't give abundant life to slaves. So somehow, the interpretation, slaves must obey their masters, is a wrong interpretation. And therefore, it must be rejected. Or wives, be obedience to your husbands. Again, that does not provide a full and abundant life for women. Now, you're probably saying, but wait a minute, I'm now dismissing some parts of the Bible. Isn't that dangerous? Jesus does this himself and teaches us how to do it. I mean, <laughs> right. he said, I mean, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, if anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. So Jesus is basically saying, this passage in the Bible that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is found in the Torah, that's wrong. Don't do that. Instead, mm -hmm. learn to turn the other cheek. Right. So, so the question then becomes, when I read the text and Joshua tells me to commit genocide and kill everything that has life, I have to reject that interpretation because mm -hmm. it does not bring abundant life. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret if you're a listener of the podcast 
how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. And I think it's what you said is very important, Miguel, because it, the Bible is more than just a collection of verses. We're actually watching an approach to interpretation in front of us, and that is something that can be a model for us to I, mean, I don't know if this is the right word to use. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't use it, but even to sort of interrogate Scripture, it, not, not to be suspicious of it, but to say, listen, I might be able to understand why they said something like this at a certain time, but today this does not bring life. This is something else. And so we have to move beyond the confines of the text is is that is that does that accurate at least from your point of view? Oh, absolutely. Not only, must we, not only must we interrogate scripture, we really have to wrestle with it, like mm-hmm. like Jacob wrestled with God. And whenever you wrestle with God, you usually end up limping away. Um, you know, it, it's not a you know, it's not this intellectual exercise. A true wrestling with the scripture sometimes hurts. Yeah. So. In our context, Pete mentioned kind of the white, middle-class, upper-class, Western way of interpreting. Can you maybe give a concrete example of what that looks like and what an alternative way of interpreting? Maybe there's an example from a text or something so we can see concretely what these different viewpoints or different interpretations might look like. Oh, sure, of course. So, so let's pick something, um, something a little simple like one of the commandments. The commandment says... Um, Seven days you will work, but on the um, seventh day you shall not do no work. You shall keep it as a Sabbath unto the Lord. Something like that. Again, I don't have a Bible in front of me. I'm going by memory now. So, so, you know, and I'm sure your listeners have gone to church, and I'm sure the pastor has preached on this particular commandment. Seven days you shall work. Um, the Sabbath you shall keep it. You will do no work on that day. And, and more than likely, they probably heard a sermon um, that had three points and a poem. We'll, we'll skip the poem, but, but usually the three points may be something like, we keep the Sabbath because God commands it, we keep the Sabbath because it's a, tie, a day of renewal, it's a day of, of resting from, from doing all this hard work, or, and maybe a third point, we keep the Sabbath because it's a time to be with family and focus on what's important in life. 
And that's a pretty good sermon, which I'm sure many people have heard and many people have preached. If I'm not, you know, and I'm sure you you probably heard those sermons yourself. Now, um, Justo Gonzalez, who writes the book Santa Biblia, talks about um, a preacher who was also uh, putting together a sermon on this particular verse. But he was a Latino preaching to a congregation uh, made up mostly of migrant workers and day and day laborers. So, so he began by asking the congregation, how many of you uh, were able to work uh, five days last week? And a bunch of hands went up. How many of you were able to work six days last week? And, and, and very few hands went up. And then the preacher asked, what does this tell us about our society that prevents us from keeping God's commandment, six days you shall work? <laughs> <laughs> you see, mm-hmm. the exactly. reason why we found the first example so, so comfortably is because most uh, people who, who, who hear this are white, middle-class, economically privileged, who probably have a job which they just take for granted. So they work six days, and, and if, if allowed, they could, they'll probably work seven days, but, but, but taking a day off becomes crucial. But for the poor of the world, for the day laborers, for the ones who are struggling to even survive, the issue is not taking a day off. The issue is being able to work six days. And this is what I mean by reading the Bible from one's own social context. So now if you ask me, well, well which interpretation is, is truer, is closer to something that's, that, that we could say is, is, is more true, I would argue that it is always the interpretation coming from the margins of society. Because not only do they understand what it means to live in a society that is rich, they also understand what it means to live in a society that is poor. This is what W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, double consciousness. Now, we could stop the interpretation there, but we could also take it now one step further. And that is, in this country, if I was to work full-time at minimum wage, which is about, what, $7.58 an hour, I will be making less than... um, than what you call it, than, 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 than a living wage. There won't be a county in, in the United States that I could afford rent. So what this tells me is the reason, well, what this means is that the reason wages are mostly kept low is by making sure you have a reserve army of laborers. If you have people who are willing to take your job, then you could afford to pay lower wages. In this country, unemployment is usually highest among um, African-Americans and Latinos. So we have an economic system that works best when you have 5 or 6% unemployment rate, of which mostly they are people of color. Mm -hmm. So not only does this verse critiques the idea that somehow I need to just take one day off and instead focuses on trying to have a job for six days, we have an economic system that is designed so that I don't work six days. For in fact, if I work 40 hours, then the company has to pay me benefits. So they make sure I work less than 40 hours a week. So this little verse that we've always interpreted as just taking a day off really has deep economic consequences to even our stock portfolio. Because if we were truly paying a living wage, Wages are an expense, which therefore means 
that the return on our stock will go down, which means our retirement fund will be worth less. So do you see how we're all so in, um, connected to this verse economically that we've always interpreted as just taking a day off? That's what so I mean you, by reading the Bible from the margins. Right. To, to take into account the real situation of those who are hearing the verse. And what, what is the, the liberating and comforting, what's the word of God to them, I guess, is what we're saying. And that may sound different at different times, under different circumstances, and different peoples who are listening to the text and listening to the sermon. So that's, yeah, I guess that's what you're saying, right? I mean, it's, it really is, to think there's one meaning in here, in the Sabbath command, seems a bit shallow. But what, and what has occurred over history is because the dominant culture gets to write the commentaries that basically focus on the importance of taking the day off, that then becomes the truth of that verse. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is, there is so much more in that verse if we begin to read it from the perspective of the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Hello everyone, I'm Buzz Clute coming to you from beautiful Columbia, South Carolina. I've been listening to the Bible for Normal People now for quite a while and really appreciate that Jared and Pete have opened up the scripture along with their guest and helped me appreciate the text so much more. Thank you so much for that. I recently became a Patreon supporter and went to patreon.com, the Bible for Normal People, and you can, for as little as $1 a month, that's so little, support them as well. So I'd encourage you to do that. I'd also like to thank the producers group that include Edward Glasscock, David Krober, Logan Jansen, Laura Grant, Matt, Brad Harris, Ryan Morrison, and Amber Gee. And with that, back to the podcast. Okay, so let's back up. Because you you talked about the economic system behind even this one small verse about Sabbath, and then you brought in to it, well, the reason we read it from the dominant perspective is because the people writing the commentaries are from the dominant perspective, which is really to say there is something about biblical scholarship and the way that it's written and the way that we employ people, or maybe the way it goes all the way back to the people we admit to graduate programs – that there is some lack of uh, equality in that system as well. Is that what you're saying too? That the people who are writing the books that the, the pastors are reading in order to prepare these sermons are largely written by white people? Absolutely. And, and not just white people, but individuals who have got, who, who've received theological training in some of the most prestigious theological schools in the country who basically only learned, um, you know, white European ways of doing interpretations. So, um, when, when I went through theological school, um, every, you know, and of course, you know, um, you know, go, uh, besides having to learn Greek and Hebrew and 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 reading all these great German biblical scholars, um, I never had to read any scholars who were African American or Latinx or Asian American or Indigenous. Um, in other words. 
I read them anyway for my own knowledge. But, but here's the thing. All my white colleagues who only studied the German giants uh, were considered educated. I, when I studied the perspective from the margins, I was considered as doing this interesting side elective stuff, um, not true scholarship. So there was a bias within the academy, uh, which is changing, um, and I will say that, but not when I was going through school, against those of us who insist on rejecting Eurocentric biblical interpretations and only focusing on interpretations that come from marginalized communities. So when we're talking about diverse voices in biblical scholarship, it's, it's not just, well, we need to hire more people. We, we need to hire more non-white people. It's the system itself is rigged in a way, or it's, it's been rigged, maybe it's getting better, but the system itself works against that happening. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way the theological system works is that schools, the, the, the faculty in the school are the ones who determine what other faculty member they want to hire. And usually they hire people who are like them, who think like them, who have the same philosophical underpinnings as they do, and who read the biblical text the way they do. Seldom is there this desire to bring in voices that have always been considered from the very beginning not to really be scholarly at all. Um, and then what many times happen is that even when students of color go to these particular top-notch theological schools, what they learn is how to read the text through the eyes of white Eurocentric scholars. So they may have a brown or black face, but they've learned to speak with white voices. So it's not just, let's just hire some more people of color. It really is decolonizing um, our minds from just reading the Bible through the lens of uh, Eurocentric writers and thinkers. Can you say more about what that phrase means? Because I, I would guess a lot of people have heard it, but not in this context and maybe not enough to really understand what it means to, to decolonize. And the way you said it, it sounds like it's connected to the idea that there are even African-Americans or Latino uh, biblical scholars who have, in a sense, I don't know if it's the right word, like been whitewashed and reprogrammed to think this way because this is the right way to do it. But maybe can you just unpack decolonize a little bit? Of course. And I think the word you just used, whitewash, is an, is an excellent way of understanding the colonizing of one's mind. If my mind is colonized. In other words, if I learn to see reality through white eyes, through the eyes of the dominant culture, through the eyes of people who historically have oppressed people of color, then what happens is that I begin to believe that truth can only be understood through Eurocentric thinkers. So I look to my oppressors for my own liberation. And, and, and that could be very damning, to be honest with you. To decolonize my mind, and this is a process I've been going through now, and, and haven't come even, I'm not even close to, to getting to the final point of having my mind decolonized. But to decolonize my mind means, how do I begin to look at reality from my own social location, from my own culture, using my own cultural symbols, and not using the verbiage and, and, and the way of thinking of the colonizers. Of those who mean you no good. 
Those, yeah, those who, in, who have historically justified my colonization and my oppression. Yeah. And, and a good example is, you know, and, and we all know this, that during slave, slave times, you had um, preachers uh, that were hired by the slave owners to come in and preach to the servants, uh, to the slaves, about um, obeying your master and not stealing from the master and, and not running away from the master. That's a colonizing process in where you try to teach the oppressed how to be domesticated, how to be subjugated to how the master was not only reading the Bible, but teaching them how to read the Bible. So the decolonized uh, methodology is to begin by saying, no, these interpretations were designed to maintain my oppression, so I'm going to reject them, and I'm going to learn to read the text from my own eyes or through my own eyes. So what do you think then is the way to help correct the problem? And and let, let's stay with academia. You know, you're a professor, I'm a professor. Let, let's stay in that world. Like, practically speaking, what can happen to, over time, to change the situation where we don't have colonization happening, we have true diversity of voices? Well, it really begins with the professor's syllabus. If one of your listeners is a student at a theological school and they look at the syllabus and all that's on the syllabus are European thinkers and there are no women, there are no people of color, uh, there are no queer thinkers, then they are truly not getting an education. They're basically are learning what people th- uh, used to think 100 years ago. But um, like I said, unfortunately, many times professors are basically teaching what they were taught uh, when they went through graduate school, um, right. w- which is you know, the, the, the so-called classics. So, so I would say, number one, we need, you know, we need to begin to bring these voices into the classroom. And, and secondly, these need to be an integral part of the full curriculum not elected classes. It's not like saying, well, I'm going to take a class on Latino theology as an, as an elective. This needs to be central to, to, to the whole curriculum. Yeah. And then okay, that's a hard step to take because like, it's hard to kickstart that if the professors are themselves maybe fumbling through that and um, might not even see themselves the importance of diversifying their bibliography. And I think this is why the students must hold the professors accountable. You know, because you're right, many professors are still teaching stuff which was great back in 1950, when we lived in a more racist and segregated society. Uh, but, but we're not in that time period anymore. Um, if, that's, if the syllabus is not diverse, then students have to demand that. I mean, the students are paying good money to be in that school. And quite frankly, um, any school that doesn't have diverse syllabus, um, a student should really think about going elsewhere. Right. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, 
Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. It seems like, I just want to think systemically here because it feels the challenge might be that and I'm kind of grasping at straws because I'm not exactly sure what the categories might be. But if you're if you're judging, if I'm if I'm teaching a course on biblical interpretation, and I'm trying to judge what the curriculum is going to look like, there's already a particular framework that I'm a I'm passing judgment through. There's a filter through which I'm saying, "Yep, this is in. This is not." And that filter is already biased toward a certain way of doing biblical interpretation. So, in some ways, I guess I wonder, there's a challenge there where I wonder even for a lot of folks, if the, like what you said, maybe the African-American author who gets onto the syllabus is the one who has been whitewashed and is already playing the same game and playing by the same rules. There's a, It almost seems like there's a, a large element of trust to say, maybe asking other colleagues who are uh, minorities or from mar- mar- marginalized people groups and saying, what do you guys think represents a good, uh, you know, representation of scholarship from your social context? And then just trusting that because I feel like if we, or if, if kind of the Eurocentric person who's been trained under that model is trying to filter that, the, the filter's already biased in some way. Is that making sense? Oh, it, it definitely does. And, and I think a true academic is always going to need to ask others who are experts in the field for their advice. A good example, I'm, I, I'm teaching this, this quarter, I'm teaching a class called Bib, uh, Biblical Ethics. And to, to practice what I preach, every um, disenfranchised group 
ha, you know, we ha, I have a book from that group written by scholars in that group. So we have an Asian American perspective, a Latinx perspective, an African American perspective. But for example, when I was looking for an Asian American scholar, I called a friend of mine who is Asian American biblical scholar, and I asked him, what's the latest book out there that um, I need to be reading to better understand um, an Asian American perspective to the Bible? And he gave me a couple uh, a couple of books, and, and, and I chose one. So... You know, I, I don't know everything, but I, I should know enough people that I could call up and get help to diversify my class and my syllabus. And the ones who are going to benefit are my students, who will now be exposed to all these different perspectives. And that in itself, it seems like, is an act of decentering yourself to even say, I need help, and allow other people to influence your classroom and how you're setting that up, which seems to be an important step in this process, too. Absolutely. Now, now if I wanted to teach a class on just um, the Bible ethics from the perspective of white Europeans, you know, I don't need to call anybody. I know what the, all the books are. I mean, I, had to, I have to know them just to get my Ph.D. But to move beyond that comfort zone means that I have to now read books that I wasn't planning to read before. And that's part of the academic life, anyway, of growing and learning new things. Is that a step that someone, because a lot of our listeners won't have gone to seminary, aren't planning to go into academia or anything like that, but could we translate that into congregational life and holding pastors and leaders accountable in terms of, you know, what are, what, what resources are they using as they develop their sermons and that they're preaching from? Is there uh, also a call for everyday congregation members to be able to do that? And maybe, have you have any experience on what a, a healthy way of doing that might be? Well, I mean, I, w- I would be disappointed if the preacher is not reading books written from other communities that the preacher doesn't belong to. So, and it's not just white people reading the writings of people of color. It's also people of color reading the writings of other groups of color. We need to truly read the works of other communities we're not a part of. Uh, so that we ourselves could be challenged on how to not only read a biblical text, but on how to do ministry. And as the world becomes more diverse, churches are going to be dealing with a diverse world of uh, coming to their front door. And if we're, not, if, we're, if we're unaware of how that diversity of that community works, we, we really can't be good ministers. So, no, yes, um, the churches themselves, just like a, a professor needs to diverse their syllabus, pastors need to diverse their library and, and, and not just read the same thinkers that um, they read when they were going through seminary. And mm. congregations, you know, your listeners who, who may not be ministers or professors, they need to branch out and, and go on, um, on Amazon and, and, and Google some books and... and and, and expand their own minds as well, if they're serious about understanding the biblical text. Yeah. Well, that's an important point. I would just, that's a great emphasis, maybe as we wrap up our time, is you didn't say, if you're going to understand the biblical text from a blank perspective. It's, if you want to understand the biblical text, period, then you have to include this diversity. And I think that's a really important point to make, is you, it's, not, it's not something extra. It's inherent in understanding the biblical text itself, is this diversity and understanding it from different communities. I couldn't say it better. Absolutely. If not, we're wasting our time. Hmm. All right. So, um, uh, Miguel, you gave a, a, an example earlier about 
the Sabbath and biblical interpretation. I'm wondering, you know, in, in the you know the few minutes that we have left, if if maybe there's another example that you think is particularly striking that might be just a good model for people to hold on to to say, okay, I think I understand what he's getting at. Sure. So so let's let's look at the uh, the New Testament. Um, I'm sure we're all familiar with the parable of the vineyard owner, in where the story is that the vineyard owner goes um, out looking for laborers. So. At six in the morning, he goes to the Home Depot, finds a couple of people hanging out there. He sends them to his vineyard to, to work. Around nine o'clock, he, he goes to the bodega, sees some more people, sends them to his vineyard to work. At noon, he, he goes to um, the barrio and sees some more workers and sends them to his vineyard to work. And then after three o'clock, just uh, towards the end, he sees some more folks just walking the streets and say, you know, go to my vineyard and I'll make sure I'll pay you. And they go to do some work. And then he begins to pay everybody, uh, beginning with the, um, the last who came, and he pays everybody the same amount of money. Now, let me pause there for a second. Isn't Jesus being a little unfair here? I mean, the guy who works in 6 a.m. is getting paid the same amount of money than the one that only worked three or four hours? I have a feeling I'm not going to answer that question because I'm going to be wrong no matter what I say. So. <laughs> but no, I would say most of you listeners would say, this is unfair. I mean, I worked all day and I'm only getting, you know, I'm getting the same amount of money like somebody who only worked three days. This isn't, you know, this is socialism. This isn't right. But, but here's the thing. The reason we say it's unfair is because our culture has taught us that money equals time. So that if I work one hour, I get $10. If I work two hours, I get $20. If I work three hours, that's $30. And that's what's fair. Time equals money. Um, I give you time, you give me back money in proportion to the time I give you. And that's how our society and our culture determine what is fair. Okay. Now, the other thing that we have to do with this verse is because Jesus is being unfair we now interpret the verse to kind of save Jesus from Jesus. So we say things like, um, well, Jesus is telling us that when we all get to heaven, we're all going to get the same amount of blessings. We're all going to get the same gifts when we get to heaven. It doesn't matter if you accept Jesus when you're young or right before you die in your deathbed. We're all going to equally get uh, the the glories of heaven. And and this way, Jesus is not unfair, and, and that's how we interpret it. But again... Jesus is talking to day laborers. And what he realizes and what the day laborers know is that when you work for a day, you get paid for a day. And if you only worked half a day and you only get half a day wages, half the people in your house are not going to eat that day. So only a cold-hearted employer will send away a worker with not enough calories for them to be able to come the next day and work again. So again, the message is not about, you know, we're all going to get to heaven and have the same amount of blessings. The message is that the, that the worker has an obligation to be ready to work when called, and the employer has an obligation to pay them enough so they could live that day and come back the next And now compare this to our culture and where we talk about things like a living wage, which means that most wages are not enough for you to have a living substance. 
we pay people so that they cannot afford housing and clothes and food, um, and we call them the working poor because they're poor even though they're working full-time. So you see, to read the text from the perspective of the day workers, of, of the poor, is a whole totally interpretation than reading it for middle-class um, economic privilege. And I think another assumption that people might make about that parable is why the workers are showing up at different times. And it might be because they're lazy. So they don't deserve to get what the other people get, which is another assumption that probably comes from a perspective of privilege. Like, you know, you just, you call, you roll out of bed at four o'clock, you show up for work at five and you get paid the same. Well, that's not fair. Like I didn't work for it. Well, you know, we're making assumptions about the nature of the worker that might really have, frankly, nothing to do with that story at all. Absolutely. And not even making an assumption, we are imposing upon a text a backstory that does not appear in the text and the text does not support. Because the text talks about the employer going to one location and finding some workers and going to another location where there were also workers who just got, mm -hmm. who wasn't picked yet, so he sent them in. So the workers were there from the beginning. You know, it's the mm -hmm. employer who didn't show up until much later. Right, right. But you're right. Well, what we do is then yeah. we try to, to, um, to, to add stuff to the, to the story so, as, so, so the story could fit into our particular uh, worldview. Yeah, right. And if that worldview is part of the problem rather than the solution for justice, that, that takes an extra amount of examination to – to make sure that we're not doing that, which takes humility and um, just an awareness, really. I mean, I find when people become aware, they tend to want to think about this a little bit more, but sometimes we're just not aware. So, alas. Well, listen, Miguel, we're, we could talk for hours about this because I know that we're both learning a lot, but uh, we probably need to wrap it up. So, uh, how can people find you online? Do you have a website, all that kind of stuff? Yes, I do. Uh, my website is www.dr, like in doctor, drmiguelderlatore.com, one word. Okay. Uh, and that's the best way not only to get a hold of my website, but um, all my books are there, articles as well as um, how to get a hold of me. Okay. Do you have a blog too? Um, I do, and it's called um, Our Lucha which is also tied into the, um, the website. So the website has a link okay. to the blog. It, it'll take everybody there. So great. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Miguel, for, for coming in and expanding, I think, uh, like you said, being able to be that for a lot of our listeners, a different voice, a different way of seeing the Bible and encouraging us to continue on that path. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay. See ya. Adios. Well, folks, thanks again for listening to another episode, and I learned a lot, Jared learned a lot, and it was pretty cool. One thing to draw your attention to, and I kept thinking about it throughout this podcast, is on our website, thebibleforknowingpeople.com, we have a store there, and there's a shirt that says, All Theology Has an Adjective. Yes. And that's pretty much what this episode was about and trying to convey, is all of our theology has an adjective, we all have a social context. And if you don't understand that, you definitely need to buy the t-shirt. If it's too much grammar for you? Yeah, you yeah. just need to buy it to remind 
remind you of what you need to be doing and learning all that stuff. Yeah, so. but you can look, you can look yeah. at that that shirt. We have other stuff on there too. If you want to continue to learn on the website, we also have uh, courses. We have one on Jesus in the Old Testament. We have mm-hmm. one on truth, talking a sum of what Miguel was talking about today around subjectivity and objectivity and biblical interpretation. So we have courses. We have books, Genesis for Normal People. We have other merch. So just check it out, thebiblefornormalpeople.com. See you, folks. Miguel, welcome so much to our podcast. And now anything on the outro, what are we doing? Well, let's see when it comes out. Sorry, Dave. I yeah. pretty much always have to do this. Dave, we're never, ever, ever prepared. prepared. <laughs> these are so good. They just, they hurt me though when I eat these. I'm eating wasabi peas, David. Okay, what am I doing? Yeah, I'm going to try one of those. Which sometimes make me cry. Yeah, wasabi is. It's serious. Though. It's like it's almost like a healthy snack. Yeah. Fire! What? I don't want it. What the heck, Jerry?